Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 26, Genesis chapter 26. We're going to start Genesis 26 tonight. And you know, we see patterns, a lot of patterns here in Genesis 26. A lot of patterns that we've seen in earlier chapters. And, and some of these patterns that we've seen are going to be built upon and further developed in the narrative of Genesis 26. Now, we've talked about patterns quite a bit in this class because they're crucial in understanding Scripture. Because God has created a universal, or rather a universe and a system of life that emulates himself. Therefore, it's orderly and it's not chaotic. Okay, now, secular humanists know instinctively that if our universe and the system of life on our planet is not um, orderly, but instead is random, uh, then they've won. But if it is orderly, all right, then they've lost. Because if it has order, who or what has ordered it? Now, relatively new theories of physics, which, by the way, are now the generally accepted theories, have shown that, first, there are many more dimensions of existence than the four we've been familiar with. Length, width, height, time. And there are a mathematical reality. And second, they have proven that our universe and system of life is orderly and not random or chaotic. It's full of patterns and cycles that just seem to repeat infinitely. Therefore, faced with the inevitable conclusion that if the universe has been ordered, by definition there must be a central orderer. Right. Yet the same scientific community that subscribes to these new theories just can't bring themselves to use the term God. So they've coined a new term, intelligent design, refusing to discuss just who the intelligent designer must be. Now, unfortunately for the scientific community, <coughs> using the rather detached and neutral terminology of intelligent design has not allowed them to avoid the controversy their findings have caused. A school in Pennsylvania has been teaching its, its students about the decades old or so finding of intelligent design of the universe in its science classes along of course with the obligatory theory of evolution and the result is a huge court battle over whether the students can even be told of the intelligent design concept. Now keep an eye on this battle. If you'll take a look in the newspapers every day, you're going to hear a little bit about it. Uh, you're going to be pretty astounded if you read about it at the twisted claims and mental gymnastics that those who brought the lawsuit are alleging. And you might even be even more astounded at the institutions and people who you might never have associated with atheism and vehement secular humanism, but even more you're going to learn just how much of a minority you are as a believer in our nation and in our world, and to just what extent 
the spirit of the Antichrist is now beginning to dominate man's thinking. It's here. Now I point this out to you because most of us have been taught to read and study the Bible using secular humanist methods. Okay, we just don't realize that's what we're doing. Okay, that is, it's required that for every lesson or principle or law or happening in Scripture, we must ask why we're taught. And we're required to draw conclusions based on the scientific method. Okay? If they are not good and com if there are not good and completely uh, rather largely complete answers as to every time we can ask why, then the biblical lesson or the principle or the law or the happening is discarded as myth or legend or maybe just fantasy. Now the Bible, of course, is not a secular humanist document. Okay, and it doesn't present the material in a scientific way. Therefore, the search for why when studying the scripture can lead us down dead-end trails. Okay, in the same way that the rapidly becoming obsolete field of physics called quantum mechanics has led scientists down a road to a dead end that's amounted to nothing. Okay, the quantum mechanics approach to physics is to try to rationalize chaos. Okay? To try and find mathematical formulas that are able to predict the unpredictable. And their goal is to explain how all the randomness of the universe produced order all by itself. That's the goal of quantum mechanics. Okay? The theoretical principles of chaos and randomness are the foundation of atheism and secular humanism. That's at the bottom of it. Okay? And after more than four decades, the quantum mechanics approach to the operation of the universe has proved to be utterly useless and futile. It doesn't work. Okay? We are a universe and a life system of patterns because we're a universe and life system of order and we see patterns because God's principles of order are rock solid and they don't change. And they didn't change between testaments either. Okay? This produces repetitions and predictable cycles. And I call these biblical cycles and, and repetitions, I call them patterns. Okay? So with that now, let's read Genesis 26 and let's watch some things repeat themselves. Let's watch some more patterns emerge and watch history, even at this early date, literally repeat itself. Okay, let's turn to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26. A famine came over the land. Not the same as the first famine, which had taken place when Abraham was alive. Yitzhak went to Gerar to Avimelech, king of the Pilishtim. Adonai appeared to him and said, Don't go down into Egypt, but live where I tell you. Stay in this land, 
And I will be with you and bless you because I will give all these lands to you and your descendants. I will fulfill the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will give all these lands to your descendants and by your descendants all the nations of the earth will bless themselves. All this is because Abraham heeded what I said and did what I told him to do. He followed my mitzvot, my commands, my regulations, my teachings. So Yitzhak settled in Grar, and the men of the place asked him about his wife. And out of fear he said, she's my sister. And he thought, if I tell them she's my wife, they might kill me in order to take Rivka. After all, she is a beautiful woman. But one day, after he had lived there a long time, Avimelech, king of the Philistines, happened to be looking out a window when he spotted Isaac caressing Rivka, his wife. And Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, Ah, so she's your wife after all. How come you said she's my sister? She's your sister. All right. And Yitzhak responded, Because I thought I could get killed because of her. And Abimelech said, well, what, what is this you have done to us? One of the people could easily have slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. Then Abimelech warned all the people, whoever touches this man or his wife will certainly be put to death. Well, Yitzhak planted crops in that land and he reaped that year a hundred times as much as he had sowed. Adonai had blessed him. The man became rich and prospered more and more until he had become very wealthy indeed. He had flocks, cattle, and a large household, and the Pelishtim envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up and filled with dirt all the wells his father's servants had dug during the lifetime of Abraham his father. Abimelech said to Yitzhak, you must go away from us, because you have become much more powerful than we are. So Isaac left. He set up camp in the Vadi Gerar and lived there. Yitzhak reopened the wells which he had which had been dug during the lifetime of Abraham's father, the ones the Pelishtim had stopped up after Abraham died and called them by the names his father had used for them. Yitzhak's servants dug in the wadi and uncovered a spring of run, running water. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, claiming, that water's ours. So he called the well Esek because they quarreled with him. They dug another well, and they quarreled over that one too. So he called it Sidna. He went away from there and dug another well. And over that one, they didn't quarrel. So he called it Rehovot. And he said, because now Adonai has made room for us, and we will be productive in the land. From there, Isaac went up to Beersheba. And Adonai appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Don't be afraid, because I'm with you. I will bless you and increase your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. There he built an altar and called on the name of Adonai, and he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech went to him from Gerar with his friend Ahuzat and Pichol, the commander of the army. Yitzhak said to them, Why have you come to me, even though you were unfriendly to me and sent me away? And they answered, we saw very clearly that Adonai had been with you. So we said, 
Let there be an oath between us. Let's make a pact between ourselves and you that you will not harm us, just as we've not caused you offense, but have done you nothing but good and sent you on your way in peace. Now you are blessed by Adonai. Yitzhak prepared a banquet for them, and they ate and drank. The next morning they got up early, and they swore to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way, and they left him peacefully. That very day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. We found water. So he called it Sheba. And for this reason, the city, the name of the city is Beer Sheba, all right, to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives, Yehudit, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Basmat, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. But they became a cause for embitterment of spirit to Isaac and Rebekah. Well, we find at the beginning of Genesis 26 that the fickle weather of Canaan had once again plunged this land into a state of hunger such that Isaac was forced to move on. Now apparently, remembering his father Abraham's similar plight and the resulting journey into Egypt, Isaac was about to do the same thing. Now his route to Egypt took him into the territory of the Philistines, right along the coast here. Today, this area you would know as the Gaza Strip. And his route took him to Egypt, uh, took him um, into the territory of the Philistines because the very well-established trade route from up north along the sea into Egypt went through the land of the Philistines. In fact, it is called the Way of the Philistines. Now, even more, as verse 1 states, he went to the royal city of Grar, right up here, all right, because it was a well-known stores city. No, it didn't have a mall. All right, it, it was a place where the king resided. All right, so the city had warehouses, all right, with food storage. Now it was common practice, all right, throughout the known world in that era, to have both emergency and regular food warehouses at the city where the king of that region lived. Okay? Obviously, so the king could keep an eye on them, and so he'd have first shot at the best foods as he wanted it. Now, this system of stores, cities, and warehouses existed primarily because the taxes that the kings extracted from their people came, for the most part, in the form of grain or some other kind of produce. So huge amounts of wheat and barley were brought in as taxes, and it had to be stored somewhere and controlled by the king's men under the king's watchful eye. The result was a need for enormous warehouses to keep um, the king's property safe. Well, there uh, in Gerar, Yahweh appeared to Isaac and he told him not to go down to Egypt, but rather to stay right where he was. In other words, despite what Isaac's eyes told him, 
despite the fact that all his human instincts told him they must go elsewhere or perish from starvation, God told him to stay in the land that God had set aside for Abraham and his descendants, that God would take him through this trouble and not out of it. Now, how often we choose to do just what Isaac instinctively was about to do, cut and run. Okay. Instead of listening to and trusting God to take us through the hard times and the challenges of our lives. And this was no easy decision for Isaac. He had practical matters he had to deal with, like the fact that he was an owner of herds and flocks. And by now, he had an enormous clan to oversee and to care for. That was his duty. So to choose to stay in an area that was now under a famine was a pretty serious decision. Right? It could mean the end of his clan. Right? One can only imagine the shock and disbelief of his clan members when he told them of his decision to stay. Okay? This was going to be a test of faith in his father's God. Now, let's stop for a second and do a little housekeeping here. First of all, the timing of chapter 26 necessarily occurs before chapter 25. Okay? So the twins, Esau and Jacob, had not yet been born to Isaac's wife, Rivka. Okay? We can know this for many reasons, but among the two easiest are, first, there's no mention of them, and second, the king of the Philistines never would have inquired about Rivka if he knew she was married. And children are a fairly dead giveaway, all right, that she was married. So, so let's also talk for a moment now about the first two words, the first couple of words of verse 2 where it says, and the Lord appeared to him, referring to God appearing to Isaac. What does this mean, the Lord appeared? I mean, is this indicating a theophany? Did God make some kind of a physical appearance before Isaac? And by the way, as in most cases in the Old Testament, the word translated as Lord here is actually yud heh vav right, God's personal name. So the, the, the Hebrew word used here and normally translated as appearance is va-yara, alright? And this word is indicative of some kind of divine revelation. Now another Hebrew word for another kind of divine intervention or revelation is very similar. It's called va-yomer. Okay? Va-yomer is invariably referring only to divine speech words, something audible. Okay? Va-yara is most commonly used in the Bible in reference to something happening with the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? It's indicative of a more direct and intense receiving of communication from God. It is a communication with the Lord in which the communication is not questioned. Okay, now visions, another form of communication with Yahweh, are often questioned. 
Was it God or was it a dream? Do I understand correctly what he just said? What does it all mean? All right, that sort of idea. I mean, the, the word form va-yara, which is what's used here, on the other hand, indicates an unquestionable, an unmistakable contact with God that includes a crystal clear message. Okay, now this could, but doesn't necessarily indicate a visual experience. So the word appearance, when we see that, should not necessarily be taken to mean that the Lord in some way made himself visible. It's more of an expression of nearness in the Hebrew way of thinking. Right? Uh, expression of nearness of, of God's presence to a human being. One final piece of housekeeping. This Abimelech that we see here is not the same Abimelech that Abraham encountered. Okay, Abimelech means father king or my father is king something along those lines okay it's an epithet it's a title okay it was probably a name that many philistine kings chose for themselves common i mean we really shouldn't have that bother us too much i mean we find modern catholic popes choosing names for themselves of past popes Okay. We, we find kings of England and France doing the same thing. Henry VIII was called that because there were seven royal Henrys before him. Okay, So it's the same idea. So beginning in verse 3, God renewed the covenant promises that he had made with Abraham. Now he renews them with Isaac. And never, never let us forget that all these Bible characters that we read about and hold at such high stature were just human beings. Okay. Isaac would naturally wonder over an extended period of time if God was still with him. I mean, he'd look at his circumstances, which at the moment was a famine. All right. And he'd do like we all do. And he'd question whether he really fully understood what God told him to do. Because Little, if any, of the covenant promises seem to be coming to pass to this point for Isaac. And the one promise that was so valuable to a clan in that era, land, certainly hadn't materialized. So Isaac needed the reaffirmation from the Lord. So he got it. Now, we also must not just quickly skip by what's said towards the end of verse 4, though it seems we've heard it before. In fact, the form of the promise from God, so that all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by your heirs, adds a small nuance from the earlier promise that all the nations of the earth will be blessed by you. Okay. The idea is this. All humanity will have their hopes and well-being somehow organically connected to the descendants of Abraham, to Israel. General mankind's fate is going to be dependent on Israel's fate. That's what it's getting at. Well, what exactly does all that mean? Okay. Well, 
even though we're so far along now in our day, in the process of God's plan of redemption, that we have a greater picture and understanding of how this is all playing out than anybody who came before us. Much of it's still to come. And so there's still a lot of mysteries out there. Now, when we eventually get to Genesis 48, 49, and 50, a lot more information is added that sheds light and, at the same time, adds even more mystery right, to just how all the nations of the earth will be blessed or will bless themselves, as it puts it, because of Abraham's descendants. One other thing, remember, the word nations in Bible speak is referring more to people than to a territory. This is very key. Don't necessarily equate the words nation and country like we think of it. Okay. In our modern vocabulary, we use the words nation and country practically interchangeably. But that's not the case in the Bible. Okay. Nations, for the most part, means definable groups of people along with their government, their leaders. But it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with specific territory. Now, we find next that Isaac obeyed. Like his father, Abraham, he listened to God. He did what he was bid to do. But Isaac also carried with him a trait very similar to his father. Fear. Now in the midst of this famine, and currently residing among a people that he apparently didn't particularly trust, he felt insecure. And as a result, we find Isaac sporting another familiar family trait. Problem with being truthful. Especially when it comes to his wife. Now, no doubt Isaac had heard the tales of his father Abraham's trip into Egypt. And so now he mimics Abraham's behavior by telling the city folk of Gerar that Rivka is his sister. Now, one day, we're told, Abimelech looks out his window and he spots Isaac caressing his lovely wife, Rebekah. Now, having heard the scuttlebutt, that Rivka was Isaac's sister, what he witnessed says otherwise. All right, and so Abimelech figures out this deceit and he confronts Isaac and Isaac admits his lie. And the furious Abimelech warns his people that nobody is to touch her or they'll die. Where would he have got this idea? It was a lesson he'd learned from his own father. All right, the adventure with Abraham. Okay. Now, although there are many obvious patterns playing out here that we saw with Isaac's father, Abraham, it's interesting that the outcomes are somewhat different. Abraham encountered famine, determined to go to Egypt to ride it out, and he did. Abraham encountered famine, determined to go to Egypt to ride it out. God said, nope, don't go. Stay here. The king of the Philistines spotted Abraham's wife, Sarah, was told she was Abraham's sister, and so he more or less kidnapped her for his harem. The king of the Philistines spotted Isaac's wife, Rivka, had been told she was his sister, but noticed 
that she obviously was not, so did not take her. In fact, he warned his people against doing anything as regards to Rivka. I mean, it's quite interesting to me that whenever this king of the Philistines makes reference to Isaac's God, he calls him by name. That's hidden in our English translations. But in Hebrew, every time Abimelech makes reference to the God of Isaac, he uses yud heh vav Fascinating. I mean, obviously, Abimelech had familiarity with Isaac's God. And he had fear, and he had respect for him. And in fact, it was the fear of the God of the Hebrews that drove Abimelech's decisions and the way he dealt with Isaac and his clan. Well, we find in verse 13 that apparently this extended famine caused Isaac to decide to plant crops to supplement and likely to feed his herds and his flocks and his family. You know, ancient historical records prove the truth of this. Right? Often we'll find the keepers of flocks and herds would plant the equivalent of a large garden so as to have grain and herbs for their families. And there is also records of shepherds growing crops to supplement their food supply in hard times. So the way Isaac acts is completely consistent with both the culture and his profession. And in no way does this planting crops indicate any intent on his part to settle down right there. Well, anyway, God blessed Isaac for trusting him to stay in Canaan by causing the crops, it says, to yield a hundred times what was sowed. Well, in that day, planting methods were quite primitive and the yield of a pound of seed versus what was harvested was uh, pretty small. Something on the order, on the average, that 25 times what was planted is what was harvestable. Right? A great year was 50 times. 75 was once in a lifetime. 100 was only possible supernaturally. That's what it's indicating here. This was a blessing of God. Now we're told in verse 13 that Isaac's wealth kept compounding all right, and that the local Philistines were becoming bitterly jealous. And from Abimelech's instructions to Isaac, we can also understand that there was fear coupled with that jealousy of the Philistine people of both Isaac's God and the already sizable number of people that formed Isaac's clan. Isaac was viewed as a threat to the Philistines. Now, this is a scenario that is going to play out time and time again with the Israelites and then the Jews as God's blessing upon them with plentiful food and longevity and fertility and wealth also caused them to be persecuted because people were envious of them and they, they were fearful of them. The Pelishtim, the Philistines, it says, showed their anger and frustration by filling in water wells 
so vital to Isaac's clan's well-being. And of course, these wells had been dug by Abraham's father years earlier. So Isaac's clan had grown so large and powerful that they represented a threat to the Philistines and Abimelech asked them to leave his land. Yet, you know, we really have to understand that we have the weaker asking the stronger to leave. I mean, Isaac could have refused. He could have refused. And a war might have resulted with Isaac the likely winner. Now, in those days, as of now, as, as now, however, Abimelech, knowing that he could not have defeated Isaac, would have made some type of power and wealth sharing pact with Isaac. And Isaac knew this. But instead, he chose to comply. And so he gathered up his clan and he moved to the west bank of, uh, of the Wadi Gerar, it's called. Now you see this little thin blue line here. This is the Wadi Gerar. Gerar is on what most maps will call the east side. I think it's more the north side. To the other side of the riverbank. Okay. And he be began unclogging some water wells that had been filled up with dirt by the Philistines as, uh, as a show of anger. Okay. When the water began flowing again, the Philistines claimed it was their water. All right. And so the conflict started all over again. So Isaac took his tribe and he moved further away to Beersheba. It's not too far, is it? Abimelech, who was an able politician, pretty smart guy, knew it was wise to try and mend fences with this growing clan that could, if it wished, come back and probably overrun his land at any time they chose. So he renewed the pact that had been made so many years earlier between his father and Abraham. You know, Beersheba, we're told, means well of the seven. Okay, and recall that Beersheba was a place that was well known to Isaac. I mean, he didn't just, just up and move one day having no idea what was there. Because it was where Abraham moved with Isaac after Isaac had his near-death experience on the altar at Mount Moriah. So Isaac was simply going back to comfortable familiarity. Now also we have to understand that this place was nothing more than an oasis. There wasn't any city there. Okay? It would be long into the future before a city was established at that spot and the city's name was taken from the ancient name that Abraham and Isaac had given it, Beersheba, Well of the Seven. Well, beginning in verse 23, Upon Isaac taking his large clan to Beersheba, God again comes to Isaac. All right. The text says, Yud-Heh-Vav-Heh appears to Isaac. And it uses that same word again, Va-Yerah, that is common in describing many of the patriarch's communications with the Lord. It's a very intense communication. Now, Isaac had just come through a pretty troubling time. He may have felt like he had failed. Okay. Because he left an area of land that, w without putting up a fight, 
Okay, that God said was going to go to Abraham's descendants. So Yahweh comes to Isaac as a comforter and he says, fear not. Why fear not? Because Isaac was fearful. Now emulating his father, Isaac builds an altar. He sacrifices to Yahweh and his men start digging a new well, something he was bound to need. And during the process of digging this well, Abimelech shows up with his chief of, chief of staff, Ahuzat, and the general of his army, Pichol. Right? And Isaac's pretty annoyed at this. Right? I mean, a statement to Abimelech is something on the order of, what now? What now? I mean, I did everything you asked in order to maintain peace between us, and here you are again. But Abimelech has not come to make trouble. Actually, he's coming with his hat in his hand. He wants a peace treaty with Isaac. I mean, Isaac is setting up shop right near the, the stronghold of the Philistines, just a very few miles from Gerar. He feels he's pushed Isaac about as far away from him as he can get away with. But Abimelech still feels insecure. Okay. Now, I suspect that Isaac knew full well why Abimelech was there, simply by who came with him. Because if Abimelech was there to make war, he wouldn't have had his civilian chief of staff with him. Now, who came with him? Ahuzoth, his chief of staff, and Phicol, the, 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 uh, rather Pichol, the, the general of his army, is exactly the entourage necessary for two nations to make a pact. Okay. And the nature of this pact is spelled out in verses 28 and 30. And it was to live side by side peaceably. I mean, I don't know if any of this is hitting you. Yeah. All right. What are we going through today? What's the, what, is, what is the name? Where did the term Palestinians come from? It's this the Greek name for Philistines. Right. This is repeating itself, what I'm telling you about tonight, today. Well, the packs concluded, we're told, in the usual manner, with a ceremonial meal and some oaths in the names of the gods each one worships are spoken. And Abimelech and his men depart. And that same day, Isaac's men that were digging the water well struck water. Now this was always interpreted as a good sign, a sign of blessing from heaven. And I have no doubt that's exactly what God intended. Well, peace and prosperity and room to grow were now Isaac's. Life was good. But trouble was brewing. Trouble was brewing. His unwise and petulant son Esau did the very thing that Isaac and Rebekah most feared and dreaded. He took two Hittite women as his wives. Okay. God knew what he was doing when 40 years earlier he had assigned the firstborn birthright to Esau's twin brother Jacob while they were both yet in their mother's womb. 
Um, I think this is maybe a good point to just call it for tonight. Let's get into Genesis 27 next week. Okay?